Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Booze, Booms and Busts. We are back again with another episode. This one is slightly later than normal, but we shall be getting back to our normal scheduling in due course. But yes, episode 22, my name is Boaz Shoshan, and as ever, I'm joined by Sam Volkering, where we shall quaff some beer at the same time as discussing uh, whatever has been going on in the market over the past week. And uh, it, it does seem to be getting pretty uh, pretty interesting out there. I, I must say, the uh, the action in Bitcoin at the at the time of this recording is looking like uh, what seventeen and a half thousand uh, dollars. So you know things are getting pretty pretty heated out there. Uh, it seems Ray Dalio is now chiming in saying that maybe there's something he misses about Bitcoin. So uh, <laughs> it, it does seem like an interesting time, certainly for crypto. Whereas the uh, the broader equity market is um, you know it's a bit a bit all over the place. But Sam, anyway, but without me rambling on, tell me what you've been looking at this week and what you're drinking. Well, so I think when was the, because we had a bit of a delay in our schedule from last Friday, I think the last time we actually did a podcast was the 6th of November. So that was, that was pre-vaccine. That was, that's pre-Pfizer. That's, that's pre-Moderna. That's, that's, uh, that's pre all the, all the real crazy action on the equities market. So, I mean, if, if we want to talk about the, what, what I've been looking at, I mean, how could you miss the vaccine announcement, announcement from Pfizer, the, the vaccine announcement from Russia, the vaccine announcement, announcement from Moderna uh, or Moderna, however, whatever you want, you know, you know how I am with pronunciations. Um, I'm just surprised that we are now on a Tuesday and uh, no one's announced the vaccine today. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that for some reason I'd assumed that our last we'd done a podcast after the after the uh, after the vaccine the May, the initial vaccine announcement. It does seem to be funny how they're you know they're flying off like hot cakes now that uh, now that people are convinced that Biden's going to be in the White House. What, what do you think of <laughs> the, that? The timing is, I mean, yeah, how could you not? I mean, it's just it's too much, isn't it? Like literally, I, I could believe after. one. I could believe one. Uh, yeah, and yeah. The whole thing about the CEOs just you know happening to sell the majority or a significant stake in, in their stock on the same day of the announcement, which had been pre-scheduled ahead of time, seems. Um, and it's seems, all uh, preliminary data as well, so it's all. Then they're not at their final endpoints. They're, they're they're about halfway through what they need to actually put these things through to, for emergency designation through the FDA. So, I mean, like. Someone made a fairly valid point. Why it's not like they wouldn't have known that information. So the Pfizer one came out on the Monday, and I think I think Biden was kind of pretty much given the nod by the by the Friday, right? Back when we did our last podcast, and then Pfizer came out on the Monday. It's like as if they didn't know on say Wednesday. Do you know what I mean? Like as as if they couldn't have released it on a few days before, as soon as they had that information, mm. and then to have the CEO actually offloading sixty million worth of stock as well. I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it does. Uh, the fact that they 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 waited and then they unload the stock. I mean, it, the optics. You couldn't really be much worse when it came to the optics, you know. Well, I've said before, it's like in crypto, they call that an exit scam, where basically yeah. you, you, you pump it and then the founders <laughs> nick off and, and just take everyone's money away. So, I mean, that I don't exit know. exit scam vaccine. That's what the exit at. scam vaccine. I mean, look, you know, Pfizer's probably, it's probably going to be effective. I mean, like, 
So, I mean, I was doing a little bit of research around it because it, it moved not just the, it didn't just move the market, it moved the whole world, right? I mean, this, I'm, I'm trying to figure out in, in, a, in a numerical value how much that single announcement moved global markets in terms of an actual value. Because I would hazard to think that no other single market announcement, positive market announcement has moved global markets so much. We all know, obviously, you know, the market crashes, Black Monday and so forth can take a market down significantly in a day. But I can't think of too many that have seen entire global markets rise on the back of just one company announcement. I mean, that's how significant it is. And uh, it's, it's a strange one because then also with the Moderna one today, Today, was it today or was it yesterday? No, yesterday, sorry. I think Monday with the Moderna one. Um, apparently, a few hours before they released that publicly, that announcement, they sent an embargo out to journalists with the, with the data. So a whole bunch of journalists around the world had the information before the public did. And you've, got to, you've, you've just got to be naive if you don't think that got out somewhere mm. along the line and someone made a packet from the Moderna announcement. I mean... The way that they operate, these pharma companies, how some of them deal with, with governments and journalists and how they release their information, particularly over in the US. I mean, like in the UK, it's very strict. If you've got an announcement like that, it goes through the official you know, RNS announcement feeds. That's who, that, everyone gets it first. It doesn't get leaked to journalists under embargo to start with. Not, not market moving stuff. But the US is just like a law unto themselves. It's mental. Well, I guess it's just because they're the ones who you know, create so many of the uh, the killer killer drugs. You know, they've got the uh, they've got the so all the labs, all of the research facilities, etc. It does. I, I agree that it does feel like um, well, it does feel like the market has been vaccinated, even if nobody in the real world has. It's got to be the, uh, the the biggest market mover as for drugs, certainly in history, right? I mean, there's no well, I mean, other. Yeah, other you right. No. The, the market the market's been vaccinated because now now the market's like well if there's going to be a vaccine then we're gonna you know gonna come out the other side of this it's it's not really a matter of if anymore it's just a matter of when and i think that was probably the big question hanging still hanging over a lot of investors was like is is this just our, our new normal that we're always going to be dealing with with you know this covid nonsense or um, is there is, is there light at the end of the tunnel? And I think that's sort of been reaffirmed with with what's happened in the last sort of week and a half. You know, whether mm. or not anyone gets it, or whether or not anyone even needs it, uh, is probably another question. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe best not mention that. <laughs> and um, and I, and I guess the other thing is is that how it becomes effective long term. I mean, the flu. So again, I was doing a bit of research and the flu jab uh, that people get for some of the more common types of coronavirus. Um, that you know allegedly don't kill anyone, but but do regularly. Um, they're only so the year to year. The CDC was tracking them, and um, a couple of years back, I think it was 2014 or something like that. It, it, the flu had uh, the flu vaccine had an effective rate of about 19 percent, and some years it's as high as 60 percent. So it like varies from year to year, and and the thing that I struggle with is that they can develop this vaccine for COVID-19 and believe that it's going to be somewhere in the 90 percentile in terms of its efficacy yet over the last how many decades they've only been able to get a flu vaccine that's somewhere between 19 to 60 percent effective 
I either, either Big Pharma is quite capable of doing all the, the great things that everyone thinks they can. And then they've just been literally mothballing uh, us for decades, whole, intentionally. Whole, so, you know, basically, it's giving the proof of all those conspiracy theorists that say all they do is they hold back the cures to, to great diseases and illnesses just so that they can make a mint. I mean, the, the way this, the speed at which this has been developed, you've kind of almost got to give that a little bit of credence, I suppose. Yeah, I've not looked at the, uh, the process uh, in great detail. There is the whole issue of if, you know, of just how much uh, the government support for it was there, because I know that they weren't part of the, um, you know, what was the name of that US program for accelerating the COVID Wu flu cures? It's called like, uh, like hyperdrive or something. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. God, what was it called? Yeah, and and but Pfizer wasn't a member of that. It it does make you wonder um, what it you know how these things happen. But you know at the same time, you know just in terms of sort of when when there's a big threat and there's like a global threat or as a national threat, you do see just in terms of the space race, you know just how suddenly advances Operation warp can, speed. Yeah, warp <laughs> Sorry. Speed. Oh yeah, well, perfect, perfectly in time with the with the space race analogy, which I which I was probably would have been a would have been a deliberate into it. You know, when there are these grand threats, there are these great breakthroughs that are made, you know, leaps and bounds faster than they did during sort of peacetime. Uh, so I mean, I can kind of believe it. But Sam, what are you drinking at the moment? Anyway, we should uh, we should we should detail for the record. So uh, my first today is called Ripe Times from the Magic Rock Brewery. Uh, this is a DDH Nipa. Uh, and the Magic Rock Brewery is in Huddersfield. This is a 6.5% ABV, 2.9 units. Um, and uh, it's uh, registered by the Vegan Society. Happy days. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, have those nice, uh, very distinctive cans. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put my finger on the the kind of style. It's like that uh, art. Um, oh God, I'm so I'm so shit with art. Um, it's like comic book kind of abstract, thick lines, bright colors. I think it looks like there's. I don't know. It looks like there's some sort of, there's some eyes and teeth on it, but I can't quite. Is that like cell shading? Like, um, like that movie, uh, a scanner darkly. You've seen it. No, sort of, sort of. It's got, it's got a bit of that about it, but, uh, anyway, it, nonetheless, it's straight off the bat. Uh, it's, it's quite delicious. I must say, oh, so I'm looking forward to finishing this one off and, and, and giving it a, a triple B rating review score. What's the uh, what's the ABV on that? Six point five. So it's right in that sweet spot where I think that that the, the good ones exist, the great ones <laughs> exist. Then the sour spot for me, mate. But uh, what I'm I'm drinking at the moment is also a six point five percent. I am still in in Stockholm, and I have managed to get into the um, the state run liquor store to get some booze that is over three point five percent. Uh, it was quite an experience getting into the uh, system Bolaget, as it's spelt. I'm sure it's pronounced <laughs> somehow differently. Um, and yeah, I mean, there were there were 
they were sell, selling famous grouse there for the equivalent of 25 quid, which seemed, wow. uh, seemed rather, um, what should I say, rather complimentary. Extortionate? The, <laughs> the brewers, well, the distillers uh, who make famous grouse. But uh, no, I managed to get a load of beer there. They actually had some uh, pretty, really good range, actually. They had some Canadian beers there that I've never seen before. Uh, they even had some UK beer, which I'd never seen before, which I oh, find interesting. There you go. Probably a, a tale of trade in there. Uh, but for this podcast, as it is, uh, as I'm Sweden, I am meant to be sampling the uh, the national delicacies. This <laughs> is a um, this is a beer, which I believe is a Christmas beer, and it's called Jule All. All in Swedish just means beer. I think the whole Jule thing is like it's like is means like Christmas. J is like. Uh, J-U-L, I think Jewel is, uh, or Joel is, uh, I think, I, I believe that means Christmas, so I could be wrong. Anyway, it's made by a brewery called Jamtland's Brewery. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but that's kind of how it's spelled. But it's got an image of the Loch Ness Monster surfacing in under, you know, an ice cap, you know, under an ice sheet, you know, like a submarine. So it's just surfaced in the middle of an ice cap, and it's wearing a Santa hat. And uh, very distinctive, and very, very imaginative. I, I like that uh, that idea yes. that Nessie might just show up, you know, somewhere <laughs> in Antarctica or wherever and just surface <laughs> under the ice. So yeah, this is Julol. It's an ale. And um, yeah, 6.5%. So we'll, we'll, see, we'll see how it goes. I believe your translation is correct. A quick little check on Google Translate has given me the English to Swedish translation of Christmas. And it is indeed Jul. That is very, that is, that is very, uh, I, I'm very reassured by that. It would have been a real, really embarrassing if it was something completely different. And, I, you know, this turns out it's not a Christmas beer and actually means something, you know, I don't know, uh, something. <laughs> something slightly more offensive, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing a, um, it was a Belgian beer, a uh, Belgian brewery, which actually I, I saw at a, a beer festival a while back, but they, they are relatively prolific. I don't remember their name, uh, though their their labels are very distinctive and they're pretty common, all things considered. And uh, I remember one of them just had an image of a uh, a fat a beer drinker holding a barrel above his head, about to <laughs> throw it down on so, on this guy, uh, sort of like homeless-looking chap, on a uh, on a on a staircase. And the, the bartender told me that the, there, was a, there was like a speech bubble and the bartender said it's like a racial slur or something. <laughs> it seems like, like in Belgium, they must have completely different sort of, uh, uh, sort of approach to that when it comes to political correctness and stuff. Um, yeah, I can't remember the name of that brewery though. Uh, See if I can, uh... It sounds like what's that? Uh, what's that French magazine that uh, always publishes those controversial um, illustrations on their Charlie Hebdo. Charlie Hebdo. It sounds like a, a Ch- Charlie Hebdo a beer did a beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's interesting seeing how uh, sort of other kind of countries approach beer. Uh, this this brewery Jamplands did uh, make several of those really cheap. Uh, um, well, not cheap, sorry, but they were quite expensive. Those really low ABV uh, 3.5% lagers I had in the, in the previous episode that we did, uh, which I was able to cane through at quite a rate. So this is their premium stuff, you know, higher ABV. So uh, I'll be interested to see how this, how this tastes in the end. Wow. I mean, anything that comes from uh, the, the state-run liquor store has got to be better than uh, 3.5% from the, from the local shop, I'm sure. <laughs> Well, one would certainly hope so. 
um, so what else have we been looking at on the market uh, this week? Because we did obviously, so, so this, the, the whole, I mean, you can't get around the, the fact that a couple of vaccine announcements lit a fire under the backside of all the stocks uh, that had been smashed to pieces when the world went into lockdown in February and March earlier this year. I mean, I was watching. So when the Pfizer announcement came out on the Monday, I remember the watching the action on the market that Monday. And in particular, Rolls Royce caught my eye because that just, not only did that go bonkers, but then some of those leveraged uh, share ETPs were doing like, at one point, I think the Rolls Royce three times long granite shares ETP was up like, 200 percent um and 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 it might have even been more than that because i think rolls even on the day as well had had jumped from like 70 70 p or something like that up to like almost almost 140 40 p in intraday trading uh which was just just nuts right for for a company that's that was i mean at the time probably worth still i think the market cap was about five billion or something or maybe even been four billion to see that kind of price action on what is effectively one of the biggest companies on the uk market that's unheard of <laughs> it does <laughs> feel like you know there's all those narratives about how uh the pound now trades like an em currency right it trades like yeah. an emerging market <laughs> currency that things like this make me feel like you know UK stocks are beginning to trade like EM stocks, just in terms of the, the vol that you're getting out of there. Um, I mean, it was a you know, positive development, though, at least. Um, and maybe, and maybe this, this alludes somewhat to how hated um, the UK remains when it for larger investors, uh, just in terms of how beaten down it was before the viral announcement. I mean, to, if you've got the... The Brexit, uh, you know, Brexit causing people to take money off the table, wanting to not have exposure to it, uh, and then at the same time, you got the virus on top of it. it I mean, so it's, it's a positive development, I suppose, that you know things rallied that hard. But it does make you wonder that um, sort of the overall stability uh, of the of uh, of the nation's uh, currency and uh, and capital, if uh, if things are, are pinging around like that, you know. Yeah, I mean, I always, I've, I always find it really fascinating at how investors view the UK markets. There is, there is this weird relationship that investors have with the, with the UK market, and and I have no doubt that it's tied also to the pound and the volatility in the pound and how that trades as well. But you're right; it seems like it's it, it's just always been a bit of a hated market. And and it, to be fair, I mean, it's it's a lot like you know most global markets is it's not it's not just a stock market that's made up of companies in the uk there's you know companies from all over the world that some just trade on the uk markets obviously there's a lot of domestic companies but it's a mishmash of, of a whole bunch of different different kinds of things and so for some reason it just still even to, even domestically uh, it seems like the domestic investors just want a slice of the us action more than they want a slice of the, their own action at home but uh it's 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 just a weird weird phenomenon like i i've said before that in australia the, the thing is is that people pay attention to global markets but most investors have got an insane domestic bias and really only do, uh, invest in the australian stock exchange 
it is it is somewhat harder and then there's obviously currency issues with with investing in you know the US or the UK but they're they are still accessible markets but there's a massive domestic bias it seems like here the the bias is to the US and I don't know whether that's a proximity thing or whether it, you know I mean it is very easy to trade the US markets here I have noticed that even compared to investing in Australia investing in the UK in the US markets from the UK is so much easier um, even you've still got to go through the same stuff, you know, the W8BN forms and all that kind of crap. But it just seems like there's just this obsession with the US markets in the U- in the UK. But and I think the investors have, have predominantly missed a lot of great stocks and and in particular a lot of great value stocks that seem to have fallen out of favour over the last few years. But I think that there's a turning point. And I've discussed this a little bit with Kit uh, Kit Winder that I think there's this this shift now that investors are realizing that it's not just about growth companies but they it's about now there are all these companies that are trading at these these values that are inherently make them sort of value and growth stocks all at once once you know sort of things return to normal trading conditions and the uk market just seems to be absolutely ripe for the picking with those kinds of stocks yeah i wonder if the um the domestic bias is rel- is related and a derivative of um, performance, historical performance in recent years. You know, if when you look at how how bad the FTSE's performed over the last twenty years relative to the U.S., for example, you can imagine why people will get sick of it and just be looking for greener pastures, or literally in this case, for greener markets, um, and why you why you would go for the US because of course you I mean look for where the money is the US is where the money is right the, the UK is not a you know it has a sort of pocket superpower status but in terms of where uh you know where equity equity returns have been going on for a quite a long time you you know you'd be better off in the US than you would be in the UK and I think it, as you described it's quite easy to get access to the US uh, provided you fill out you know a W8 Ben form but uh, you know, I can't. I can imagine why a UK investor, when you when FTSE returns, you know, if you're unless you're going for dividends and things like that, mm. when uh, when we don't have these Silicon Valley kind of magnates, you know, we don't have these dot coms mm. of the same caliber or of the same of the same ilk as the Americans. Why you would see a lot of, of Brits going ashore? You know, if you were just starting up. If you were just a, a novice investor and you didn't really want to try very hard, but you wanted to chase some some returns, you wouldn't come to the UK. I mean, you just wouldn't. You were like, if you're like, okay, well, I'm, I am going to use past performance as an indication of future results. Uh, where am I going to put my money? Does anyone look at the FTSE 100 and feel really inspired? Probably not. And so you can see why. So that that performance bias then leads to greater performance. You know, it has a has a, a rolling effect, a cyclical, pro-cyclical effect, where um, you got that, that was it? It's, it's not just a recency bias, it's that hot hand fallacy where things that have worked are expected to work again. So you go for you go for the stage rather in the UK. But I mean, that creates its own opportunities, right? As you're describing, yeah. the, uh, these knocked down, you know, old titans, which, uh, which, are, which are resident on our shores. And yeah, you know, of course, there's... Um, one thing I think they'll make UK the UK stock market in general quite uh, quite an interesting, quite appealing case will be uh, next year. Well, just as we're going to next year, it does feel like commodities are going to get a re- really big shove 
mm. and all the major commodity companies. So if you're a big player, if you're if you're serious and you mean business and commodities, you're probably going to be headquartered in London. I mean, there are exceptions, but if you're a big multinational commodity company, you're probably going to be listed in London because that's where so much of the, the financing for big commodity companies are. Like um, Glencore. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're all based here. Uh, not all of them. I mean, there are, you know, there are Swiss exceptions. And if you're going for public, publicly listed ones, it's more of a bias, I believe, uh, because uh, the, just how friendly the city is to, um, is to, is to commodity producers in general. London's kind of, I like to think of it as sort of the commodity capital because that's where all the, the big uh, commodity majors are, are put their headquarters because of course, London life is very comfortable and uh, you've got a very uh, capital friendly environment for these big companies when they need to borrow and things like that. But it, so the smaller ones, Canada, Australia, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, you get those listings there, very friendly to junior listers, well, junior, uh, junior companies. Um, and but then the big ones come here, so it'll be very interesting if commodities do get a big shove next year. Uh, that how that'll be reflected in the FTSE, but just in the the London Stock Exchange in general when it comes to uh, put the performance of what's listed there. I think that I think that might change the narrative somewhat when it comes to uh, when it comes to uh, you know British companies like with Australia, for example. Uh, just uh, just to carry on this tack, we're talking about the the recency. When well, I'm talking about recency bias for the UK. And how FTSE's been uh, not not great for growth. If you're if you're if you're after growth, when and many investors are, it seems if uh, if recent performance is to be is to be believed, um, you know Austro- the ASX uh, is looks more interesting. So I can imagine an Australian saying, "Actually, I'm going to keep my money home because there's some pretty hot action coming on here." Uh, whereas I, I I just don't see the things are quite the same for for the UK. Yeah, the I mean the Aussie market and the British one aren't all that dissimilar when you look at the sort of high end, uh, you know, the top one hundred, top two fifty kind of stocks. Like you, you're right. right. So when I look at the FTSE one hundred, right, it's it's not it's not a sexy list. Like when you go to the when you go to the Dow and to the Nasdaq, you know, there are some there are some cool companies in there. I mean, you look through the FTSE one hundred, and you, you're right. You've got likes of Anglo Americans in there. Um, Aviva, BAE Systems, BHP, BP, BT Group. Um, what else? So some other GlaxoSmithKline, Glencore, Hargreaves Lansdowne. Um, oh, JD Sports Fashions is about as exciting as it gets. <laughs> Jay Sainsbury, Legal is and Burberry General Lloyd's Burberry's on there. No, that's um, what you know, uh, Persimmon, uh, Rio Tinto, Rolls-Royce, Seven Trent. Um, I mean, these aren't sexy companies. And, and so I, you can see why. I think, and, and, and so we obviously this year in particular, we, you know, you notice that when you, we've talked before about things like the Robin Hood effect. You know, when, when people come to the market, when people invest for the first time or looking to build positions, they're not always looking for solid companies that pay dividends long-term and, you know, they want exciting growth. They want the next Tesla and well, the next hurts. Yeah. yeah, At least maybe hopefully not the next wire card. Um, So, you know, they, they look at it, they look at a stock like Vodafone group or Tesco and they're like boring. uh, And they move on to something else and they move and, and, and in, 
inevitably they move to the US market because the, the names on the US market are the names that they use every day, the names they're familiar with, the exciting names that get all the press and all the coverage in, in the media. And so it becomes a lot more, um, it becomes a not more, more of a known to, to investors because they want to invest in the names that they know. And people do, people want to invest in the names that they know and that they're familiar with. And that makes perfect sense. But I just think it's at a great disservice to you know investors because when you consider everything outside of the FTSE top 250, um, there's so much more going on. And it's the same in Australia, right? So if you look at the ASX uh, 200, you know, it's mainly made up of banks, big miners, um, a couple of successful technology companies um, and sort of infrastructure and commodities, right? It's, it's a similar thing because the, the, the two markets aren't that dissimilar, but they are in, in terms of size. And it's outside of that, that big, big end of town where the really, you know, the really exciting stuff comes and what the ASX tends to have, and it's, it's not too dissimilar in the UK as well, but on the ASX, you find that there are an increasing number of small technology companies that are actually US tech companies that don't want to go through that. They can't afford necessarily to go and list on the NASDAQ. Yeah. They can go and list on the ASX, get access to very, uh, easy capital in the public markets. Um, raising capital in Australia is a piece of piss. And a lot of that has to do with as well, um, the superannuation system and a lot of Australians being invested in the stock market, whether they like it or not, because of that um, superannuation system. So that, that you're seeing that happen a lot more, which sort of adds credence to that idea that the ASX is great for, you know, these really small growth companies, you know, high risk, but small growth companies, they're actually yep. us companies listed on the ASX. And I think we'll start to see that a lot more happening in the UK as well. Um, particularly around the fact that as well, I think, I think there's a, 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 a sort of it's lagged Australia very much, but it's starting to develop more around, uh, you know, self-funded pensions and, and, and forced pension savings that people are getting, you know, put into now by employers and things like that. It's, it's only starting to really now ratchet up around that sort of thing. And I think that, that the UK has lagged Australia in that sense. And I think that has a lot to do then with investor mentality around investing and taking a more proactive nature in how they invest. Because when you grow up in Australia, um, and it's been like this since the early nineties, you know that you've always got money going into your retirement savings that you can't access till later. And, but you can still have control over that. And it sort of forces a little bit on you, uh, an interest in investment and in how your money is invested. It, I don't find that that's the case here in the UK because that system hasn't necessarily been in place with such ferocity as it has in Australia, but I think that's changing. And I think now that we'll probably see, and particularly with what's happened this year as well, and things like the Robin Hood effect that we'll see a lot more younger generations. I think we'll see a whole generation of people now come through over the next couple of decades with a far greater interest in investing and also investing in companies that aren't necessarily just in the U S but just can make them a, a fair bit of money. And I think once they start to appreciate what is outside of the, the big end of town, you know, the 100, 200 stocks on any stock exchange, that's where the, that's where the real fun starts to begin. Cause you know, there's, there's two, 2000 odd stocks on the UK, um, London stock exchange, same in Australia. It's about 2000 listed stocks on the Australian stock exchange. Not sure about Canada, but Canada is another market that's actually similar to Australia in that sense. So 
you know, there's a lot to choose from, but it's just about, I think people's awareness of what's out there. Um, and hopefully the, the, the a byproduct of what's happened this year is that now that awareness will start to come back once all these big companies go back to where they were and people realize there's not much growth potential in them anymore. They'll swing back to growth stocks. Mm. I think the, uh, I think what you said about the SX being very open, very uh, loose when it came to allowing new companies to go and raise capital. I mean, uh, that feeds back into what, one of the reasons why um, it's only the big guys that come to the UK when it comes to the, the, you know, the, the commodity giants, because mm. listing fees on in London, at least, are very, very expensive. You know, it's, a, it's, not, it's not cheap to get listed and to go through all of the bureaucracy and the administration required to, uh, to get listed and to, and to remain listed, because there are you know, significant costs that companies have to deal with just in order to, to stay you know, listed on the exchange and whatnot. I'm, I'm personally quite skeptical that uh, pension reform is going to get people much more um, interested in what, they, what they're invested in. I think with, uh, when it comes to self-invested pension plans, you know, SIPs that you can get in the UK, I think uh, people who have those, yeah, are, are pretty, pretty aware. But uh, to own a SIP is something that you're only going to have either if you've got a financial advisor who's going to get you uh, to invest in a personal pension plan, in which case they're probably going to get you into investment funds rather than stocks. Uh, and if you have, but if you have your own SIP, then you're, you're already switched on enough to be wanting to try and pick your own assets or pick your own funds. I think the, uh, broadly speaking in this country, uh, well, I say in this country, I'm in Sweden now. <laughs> Lord knows what that pension is. Um, <laughs> But well, they, they, the, don't, they don't have one to that. They're like the rest of the Nordic countries where the state just looks after them because their state saves so much money. Uh, well, I, I've not looked into it in, in, in great detail. But I mean, you know, Sweden has its own stock market. Um, it's something I want. And, you know, it's very, been very interesting to look at what the, what the OMX, uh, I think it's the OMX 30 for, for Sweden, how that's behaved over time. Um, all the Nordics, they have these. Is it, that, that's, isn't their stock exchange run by the NASDAQ? Uh I don't believe so, though I could be incorrect. Don't know. Something I'll probably need to I need to look into more depth. OMX, I believe, does a, is the the um, is the it's not the indexer. It's the um, maybe maybe they are the exchange actually, but they're the uh, they they do it for pretty much all the Nordic Nordics. I think I think Iceland is similarly has an OMX index as well. Uh, but just in general with the with the UK. The I think the bias towards equities, which Australia's pension system have, I don't think they're repeated in the UK to the uh, in the same way. Like no, it's not, and I, I think that change will will be decades in the making. It's not going to happen straight away because it's so far behind. So you are you are right in that respect. Yeah, I think the uh, well, it, it would be it feels very it would feel very strange if the government really started trying to get uh, individuals to be more so active with their own uh, pension savings to the point where they'd be like, you know, you should really start speculating on the stock market. It'd be pretty interesting if they did that. And given the state of uh, the retirement gap that there is in the UK, and you know, people really don't have, they have not saved or invested enough to get the, the retirement that they expect an awful lot of the time. Um, you know, some, somewhere or another that people are going to try to, you know, there've been plenty of schemes over time, but there are, there are going to be some kind of government incentives to do it. The superannuation thing that the Aussies have that you guys have got, it does seem quite, it seems quite unique. I don't think, I mean, do you know other countries that run a similar scheme where they really do put the ball in your court where they're saying, 
you need to make some pretty important decisions about you know what you, what the money you're saving into is going into what you, um, you know. I, I i don't think so so i i give i will give australia credit where credit's due, the changes they made in the 90s to the superannuation system in terms of making it compulsory for employers to, to contribute to, and then ramping up those payments uh, effectively over the last sort of 30 years now, has, it's, it's, it's had a twofold effect. It's, I mean, it, it's forced people to save for retirement and they were predominantly the baby boomers, which now are in that retirement phase that have really benefited greatly from it. Um, but it does mean that the, and, and even still with that, it's still not enough for the average person to retire on. And there's still a, re a reliance on the state, but it does take a great burden off the state uh, yeah. for funding people in older age. And I yeah, think so that's offloading that liability. Yeah. And I think that a lot of countries like the UK are going to be forced into that position because they will reach a position where they can't afford to 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 look after people <laughs> in their old age they like they i can't see how they can afford to to cover all the the needs uh, uh through social security and, and benefits and all the things they do as as people get older and and we know that the average age uh you know in the uk it's it's, it's getting older um, people are living longer. And so I don't think they have any other choice, but to, to, to undergo similar sorts of change to really put the hammer down on compulsory uh, pension savings, because otherwise um, people aren't going to do it. We, we know, I mean, having worked in, in, you know, the financial advice world before I, I do what, what I've been doing for the last seven years, you know, it's very clear that the, that the average person, isn't engaged with saving or, or investing for the long term and until it's too late until they get close to retirement and then they're like oh shit i got no money what am i going to live off and i can't i can't live off the i can't you know maintain the same lifestyle that i've been accustomed to off of the age-based pension it's just not enough and then by then it's too late and so i think that there's no other choice but to really undergo you know I mean, the government has to do it because if they don't, the average, most people won't. And, you know, we don't have the reach to get to 65 million Brits to help them understand how important it is to start early um, and keep at it for, you know, 50 years. So uh, I think there's no other choice. And in doing that, it, it then forces a lot of money back into the domestic stock market. And it kind of has a compounding effect in terms that people kind of have to then get engaged and that the, you know, yes, it does. A lot of it flows to funds and a lot of it inevitably flows to funds, but even the funds management industry is going through a rapid change in terms of you know, how people can access it, the sorts of funds that are available um, and even, you know, how people can access advice, whether it be, you know, through the tr traditional methods or the, you know, new innovations in robo advice and AI advice and things like that. So I think the UK has been in a position where there's been a lot of money in the UK and there's a lot of money that flows around the UK. There's a lot of money goes through businesses, through the stock market, through currencies, through commodities, not enough of it's gone to the average person. And I think that there's going to be some change coming because especially with what's happened this year and the, the, the debt that they've taken on and the stimulus that they've created uh, you know, from this, from the, the bank of England, <sighs> I, I can't see 
how they can dig themselves out of it apart from getting the you know the people to to sort themselves out yeah i mean i'd uh, I'd, I'd like to uh, i mean i hope i hope that kind of happens uh, it's just hard to imagine that there'll be um much of a much of a push towards self-reliance it doesn't feel like recent years um something up with this administration that there's anything like a push towards self-reliance present that it is interesting because you've got both the problem for the government and you've got the problem for the everyman which ends up becoming the government's problem so yeah exactly in terms of um you know civil service pensions which are of course you know you know the the public sector will uh will take umbrage quite often in terms of their salaries relative to the private sector. You know, something that is often brought up, you know, do you know how little I'm earning compared to somebody in the private sector? Do you know what I can make in the private sector? And yet there is, at the same time, there is either deliberately or uh, ignorantly ignored the topic of pensions, which of mm. course in the public sector are guilt-edged, you know, they won't be defaulted on. And in terms of the, um, the transfer- Well, they value, say that. They say that, but these 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 defined benefit pensions that that they are still accessible here, they still have to be paid for. Yeah, just, okay. just saying, just saying. <laughs> oh, no, no, hundred uh, percent. But the thing is, they will do because it just comes out of the government's budget. I mean, the and the government's budget is something that nobody is going to be trying to constrain in recent years. I mean, the government has no will to do it, and at the same time. The, uh, the Bank of England has made an awful lot of, uh, has taken such action in recent days that uh, it, it seems to me that there's not going to be any any real attempt to try and control it. Certainly not when it comes to pensions. But you know, as I'm, as I say, the pension system for the public sector, right? You know, there's obviously uh, you know the, the the transfer values that you could get as a as a as a civil civil servant. Mm. Uh, in relative to the private sector, the, the benefits are much, much, much greater, especially for somebody who started working um, yeah. you know, in, the, in the 80s, 90s, that kind of thing. Uh, so you see the attempt to offload a lot of that liability. So you get the, uh, the, the new recruits in the NHS and in teaching and things like that. Uh, they get offered a different, fine, a different type of final salary scheme. Uh, which of course uh, promises less, less benefits to some degree, or even in some cases, when it comes to teaching, uh, in my experience, there was even uh, an attempt to kind of get people onto what's close to a defined contribution scheme, which uh, which has less of a government guarantee and of course less of a liability. So you see that there is that attempt to push people onto, um, well, to offload the liability of paying for these people's retirement forever and ever. Uh, uh, but the you know the problem still remains. If the if you you know you got the public sector uh, you've got a nice state guarantee uh, you know, state guarantee pension a final salary pension it's only really in the private sector that they're called defined benefit um, but and defined benefit pensions are completely eradicated for new recruits in in the private sector right good luck getting any yeah. company to, uh, to offer you a defined benefit scheme uh, pension I mean I remember uh, when I was a financial advisor I remember a, a client who worked at uh, who worked at McDonald's for a short period of time. I think it was only maybe, maybe a year, year and a half, maybe two years. And uh, they'd been offered, they, they'd been enrolled into their defined benefit pension scheme. And uh, you know, just for those, a very short period of time, this was, 
And uh, you know, by the time that uh, I was speaking to her, which would be in the early 2010s, uh, you know, the the transfer value on this, which is how much you could you could um, you could take effectively from McDonald's and then transfer into a pension, if you didn't, if you decided not to just take the benefit, so at at retirement age you get paid a little bit of money based on the size of the pot. You know, mm. if, if the transfer value from just working at McDonald's for a short period of time when it comes to a career, you know, it was over 20 grand. And this had just been just from being in a part of a defined benefit pension scheme for a, for a short period of time. So defined, but so there are plenty of people who are who will definitely be in receipt of one. You know, if you're retiring around now and you've got defined benefit pension, you're going to be sitting pretty. Yeah, you're, you're, absolutely. You guys are the the liability that these companies can <laughs> deal with. Yeah. For the public sector, it's not so much of a liability because the government has to pay for it. You know, it's another privilege that you get as being a, a public servant rather than working in the private sector. Is the well, well, that's what I'm saying is I don't think the government can keep affording to continue to pay for those those sorts of, of pensions indefinitely. They, they, there has to be a point where they're like the public, where they're like the private sector and they just go, you know what? We can't afford this liability anymore. No one's getting them. There's a cut off. Like political suicide though. There's too much, there's too much, uh, there's too many you know, head honchos within public service, I believe, that any such legislation would be created. Because if you rile those people up when you're in power, they're going to do everything they can to prevent you from legislating anything. And I think trying to keep them on side is something that prevents that kind of legislation from happening, you know? Mm. I'm not sure. I, I, I almost feel like they're going to get pushed into a corner where they have no other choice because it's one of the, it'll end it. If it's not already it, one of the biggest liabilities they will have to meet uh, ongoing and it's only going to grow. Yeah. Well, like, well, like I said, there are efforts to offload that when it comes to new recruits getting less of a promise. But I think the other, I think there is another option. And sadly, I think the other option is going to be taken, which is simply that the Bank of England monetizes this stuff. So well, that's, uh, that's the other thing, right? Yeah, they do that. And then that it, it, again, either way, it still ends up in a position that you, you, you don't want an economy forced into is that the, like you said, the Bank of England ends up having to bail out the, these, you know, has to bail out the liability effectively. Yeah, I mean, I imagine though the, there's de- there are ways that this can be done where the liability is is not it's not made to look so overt as to uh, be the Bank of England printing the money to do it, but in effect it is. So, for example, you know, the government could issue a public pension like bond. You know, uh, the the Treasury Department could issue a gigantic bond saying that this is going to yield X amount. Uh, you just need to give us all, all of this money first, and that could be sort of sold to the banks. And then that bond could then be sold on to the Bank of England and so the banks could take a clip of the money and then it would just be kind of forgotten about on the Bank of England's balance sheet. <laughs> I, like, I, can, I can see things like that happening when it comes to welfare in general. You know, the government just saying that we're going to issue these special, you know, somehow related you know, welfare bonds to some degree. Um, and they end up being uh, held on the Bank of England's balance sheet. Uh, and of course, you know, the interest payments from Bank of England holdings, you know, when they buy all these government bonds and they earn all the interest, they immediately credit all of the interest that they receive from the Treasury back to the Treasury's account. So there's no interest actually that gets paid. I think there's, there's ways in which it can kind of be obscured, you know, by just saying, oh, well, all of this, all these payments are then coming from this bond and this bond is now held over here. And, you know, there are ways in which it can sort of be sort of be forgotten about but then in places like new zealand right i mean they uh you know the the new zealand central bank uh yeah the your kiwi cousin i mean they've got <laughs> the, the the governor i think it's adrian Orr is his name 
uh, has just gone, you know, just on completely on the record saying, yeah, we're, we're, we're thinking about direct monetizations. I mean, there are, there, there are, there are cons of direct monetization, which in this case just means, in this case just means directly funding the government, just printing money and giving it to the government. No intermediation by banks or anything. This is just, we're going to increase the, the, the bank account of the, uh, you know, the, the, the New Zealand treasury by X amount and they're going to spend it however they like. You know, he's on the record. Uh, saying, you know, there, there, are, there are cons to this, but there are pros to this as well, you know, and it's definitely a taboo, but it's something that we're, we're definitely thinking about. It's definitely on the table. When you've got that kind of uh, sort of thumbs up, if you, once, once you've already, once you've even spoken about it like that in public, it, re it feels very hard to think that there's going to be some time when they'll be backed into a corner and say, oh, no, we never meant that. Uh, and... And in in that circumstance, you know, if the if the government, if the treasury official, or you know, the the you know, the prime minister or whoever, you know, just says, "You guys were talking about this before. Are you, are you telling me you lied? You're not going <laughs> to print money to help us out and save all of these people who are just trying to retire, who we promised. You know, are, are you really going to uh, make all of these people, you know, go back to work when they're in their 60s and 70s and work until they die? You know, it feels like it's it's a position." From which you can't get out of at that point. So, and I think I think what the New Zealanders are doing is, you know, it's sort of it's on the fringe, but I think that will come to the centre at some point when it comes to the sort of the you know the Five Eyes, you know, the the former colonies of the British Empire. It feels like that is you know, sort of will re return to the fore to some degree. Yeah, I mean, I think what everything, every every time you look at anything like this, it all seems to come back to the one. Uh, the one common theme is that, that 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 central banks are just so willing to just completely print and stimulate their way out of anything now that it's just uh, I mean it, for me I can't see I struggle to see where they stop I don't know if they can stop and if they can't stop I mean what what does what does this all look like in another ten years time if if they just continue to to follow the the same patterns that they've done basically since 2008. I think this, um, I think what it comes back to ultimately is that they'll continue for as long, for as long as they can. Right. Um, I think the, I think if this goes too far, you get to the point, uh, yeah, the only, the only release valve for this stuff really, when it comes to, um, a real reckoning is when it comes to the currency itself and the value of the currency itself. And uh, you, when when people lose faith in the currency, right? There's that there's that great saying that when um, what was it? When uh, when there's a lack of faith in the private sector, it creates deflation. When there's a lack of faith in the public sector, it creates inflation. And uh, if you got if you got that sort of you know in, in this case where you're getting money printing uh, you know gone gone amok, and you know there's no there's no way which uh, liabilities are not going to be paid by the government if they don't just if the bank of england doesn't just print the money in this case and you get you know a real de a severe devaluation in in the currency to the point where it becomes hard to control i think central banks will then have to be forced to return to their previous responsibility you know before they took on this inflation mandate before they took on uh, or, or before they take on in the future a, a gdp mandate before they take on a um uh, you know <laughs> You know responsibilities for uh, climate change now, or uh, social justice and things like that. I think yeah. 
you know, if things get really bad for the currency, they'll have to return to their original mandate, what they were really created for, which is to preserve the value of currency. And to do that means to th do things like raise interest rates. And you know, when things were, people, you know, when the, when the world was on a, a gold standard and things like that, this is what the main, the primary responsibility of central banks was just preserve the, va the value of the currency and make sure that it's, it's stable. And uh, I think things might return to that point if you get a, a lack of faith in the currency. When people start to think, actually, I really shouldn't be, my savings account should not be full of pound sterling, it should be full of Aussie dollars, it should be full of uh, you know, you know, New Zealand dollars. Uh, I think it's, it's when, when people stop believing in that, that this becomes a problem to the central banks and they need to restore confident, confidence in the currency, which is something they've not really cared about until now. Uh, and that would mean things like, um, you know, interest rate hikes and, and, you know, the way it used to be where under a gold standard where uh, when a currency was depreciating, depreciating, sorry, uh, the central banks would have to step in and raise rates to try and hoover up capital from the rest of the world, to then recapitalize the currency to some degree. Um, oh, but anyway, Sam, I've actually finished this this beer, and I'm I pretty much finished my second beer, which happened. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I have would, moved on to mine as well. <laughs> right, right. I would give the uh, the jewel all the Christmas beer. Um, jewel. I mean, yeah, I would give that. You know, I think the label is probably the best bit of this. I mean, it is the Nessie with the Santa hat surfacing in Antarctica somewhere. <laughs> I think I would give that. You know, that that it's one of the more imaginative labels that I've seen, and it's you know quite amusing as well. The beer itself was relatively mediocre. I would probably give it an A, <laughs> uh, but but it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. Uh, but the for the label, I would give it an A plus. We'll get that plus uh, added to it. Uh, oh, the second can. one I'm on is a, uh, another Swedish beer, which is called Kalholmen. And then underneath it's called Harvest Time. And this is a 5.3% uh, Kalol. I believe it's another ale. And this one's, this one's pretty good. What, what, what's your second? As you say, Kalol, Jewel, all, it sounds like, um, it sounds like the various names of Superman's family. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna have uh, Nicholas Cage naming his kids after these in, uh, in short order. <laughs> Uh, so I'm gonna. So first off, I obviously had the Ripe Times from Magic Rock Brewery, um, and it's a DDH Nipa. Uh, I've I've really enjoyed that actually. That was that was very very nice to drink. Um, yeah, I, I I can't say much more than that. I I, I was I got so I got so in, engrossed in what we were talking about that I, I probably forgot to to really notice the taste profile of the of the beer, but. It was very easy to drink, um, very enjoyable, good alcohol content. I like that quite a lot. I'm going to actually give that a double B minus. Oh man, you're uh, it's, it's well up there. I'm, I'm regretting my decision to go abroad now. All, all, <laughs> the, all the good beers appear to be back home. Well, yes, it seems it, 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 from from the last podcast we did with your fine selection of three point five percenters. Um, <laughs> I kind of established that you're probably going to be uh, in, in somewhat of a shortage of, of great quality beers, but you know, I'm, I'm sure you'll find one eventually. Uh, the second one I've moved on to though, is from, uh, lost and grounded, uh, and it's called want to go to the sun and it's just a regular pale ale 4.6%. Um, yeah. From the lost and grounded brewery in Bristol. Hmm. Lost and Grounded, they've got some pretty interesting uh, interesting labels. 
they're quite a yeah they're a good brewery all things considered in my experience yeah I mean, the, the label on this one looks like some sort of it basically looks like the surface of the sun would look no but, well, orange, the, but a bit more orange than yellow but i guess the right. sun kind of is orange not really yellow uh well yeah i've never been so i couldn't comment but it does look uh yeah, well, the uh, <laughs> Lost and Grinded, they, they've always been pretty imaginative when it comes to the labels. Uh, but Sam, I think, I think I'll actually go for a third one, and I think I'll give this one a rating, so I've pretty much finished it. Uh, this is Cal Holman, Harvest Time, uh, 5.3%. Another rail, I would give this, I think, I think I would give this one an A+. It's got a nice label, but I'm not giving it the oh, possible label. It is a, I think it's a slightly nicer, slightly nicer ale. Um, but Sam, I, I do notice that you that you did deftly uh, deftly dodge the questioner. I think I asked a question at the very beginning of this podcast, where I was asking you what you made of the uh, the Bitcoin price rally. Ah, You've uh, yes. not offered your comment, and this is of course your your wheelhouse, really. I mean, what what do you make of what's going on? Well, do you know what? So everything we've just talked about in however long we've been talking now all seems to come back to the same point uh, that what's happening with Bitcoin in particular right now is I think a direct hedge against all those things against uh, stimulus, against debt, against all the actions of central banks around the world, against governments not being able to afford or pay for all these programs that they, they are saying they're going to have that it's a hedge against inflation. Uh, it is, it is uh, it's digital hard money. And I think that we're seeing a lot of the institutional money and family office money that for the last couple of years we've been saying is on its way to this space is now coming because they can all see, they can see the economic ramifications of what's happening around the world and they want to hedge against it. And, and their, their options are gold and Bitcoin. And I think a lot of them see far greater utility in Bitcoin than they do gold. And I think that's bringing a lot more interest, big money interest, not necessarily talking about retail investors anymore. We're talking now about big money managers. We're talking about big family offices, big endowment funds, institutional money that is now starting to add Bitcoin to their to their portfolios because it's it's a good hedge against all the shitstorm that's happening around the world through various central banks and governments, and uh, and it's just continuing to push Bitcoin to to where we expected it to start to head. And you know, right now it's just peaked up around seventeen thousand seven hundred US dollars. Uh, I don't see it stopping uh, anytime soon. Not 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 the, with the way that. And again, it's all. This has all come since two thousand and eight, and with nothing's changed in the in the financial system. Nothing's changed. If anything, it's gotten worse, and that only I think just reaffirms the case for something like Bitcoin as an alternative, uh, as an alternative hedge against all of that. Um, and and it's it's reflecting very strongly <laughs> in, in relation to it all. So, I mean, you can't you can't ignore it. It's you you just kind of even Maisie Williams, uh, the 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 actress that played uh, Arya Stark in in Game of Thrones, tweeted yesterday: Should I long Bitcoin? Uh, yes or no? She had seven hundred and fifty thousand people vote on her question. Uh, you can't ignore Bitcoin anymore. Like you said, Ray Dalio's starting to see maybe he missed something. All these guys that said it was a scam and a fraud and it would be worthless and it was dead. 
they've all been proven wrong. And I think they've finally come to the realization that it's not just going to fade away into the night as some, uh, some, some fad created by, by nerdy teenagers in their bedrooms, uh, (laughs) which, which was actually something that was put to me, uh, in back in 2014 they were like it just sounds like it's a bunch of teenagers in their bedrooms you know with a science project it's like well no you really missed the point and and even now people still miss the point like so as i said Maisie williams did that question on twitter 750,000 people voted on it and and believe it or not there was still an, a majority of people i think it was 52 over 50 just over 52 percent of the people said no she shouldn't long bitcoin now so it just goes to show that I think a lot of people out there still, if anything, now it's probably the, the resale investor, the average investor, you know, the individual that probably still doesn't quite appreciate what it is relative to the traditional financial system. So what's happening right now is f- fucking fun to watch. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it's, it makes for great viewing, um, but it's not unexpected at all. I must say the um, yeah I mean I I think it's kind of, I think it's a good signal that most people said no on that on that poll but the fact that it was fifty two forty eight uh, is is pretty it's pretty wild I mean the, there were still forty eight people that were saying uh, were saying yes ultimately to that but yeah that's true I think I think from a you know from a, a price analysis perspective you you think it's a good thing that this is being hated or at least it's well it's not really hated but disagreed with to a to a to a large degree in that poll but it is and it does it, it gives you sort of the vibe of twitter quite well because it was a twitter poll yeah um, yeah i mean there's i think there's another aspect to this and this is the this is the trap that i fell into when i first started getting into into all this so when i first started learning about bitcoin i found it on you know an, an internet forum and got to sort of couldn't figure out what it was and then sort of got to figure out what it was and I remember having a conversation with a mate and I said, you know what, man, this is like when, you know, when you're like a little kid and your parent and you're like asking your your mum and your dad for like some money and they're like, no money doesn't grow on trees. And I said, you know what, this, this Bitcoin thing is, it's, it's the money tree because it it actually does (laughs) this thing. It it can be just, just created online um, by solving an algorithm and it has value. And so it's a money tree, but, as much as I understand, and, and you know, then I read Satoshi's white paper and sort of, you know, read through some of the um, original email threads through that cypher, cypherpunks mailing list and, you know, got an idea of what the core, you know, ethos behind it was uh, in relation to everything that had sort of come in 2007 and 2008. And then obviously Bitcoin came in the start of 2009, even though I had started to understand what it was trying to achieve. Um, when I saw the price moves in fiat converted money, it scared me away because I'd seen it go from, you know, a few cents to 30 cents and then from 30 cents to $30 and then from $30 back to $2. And at the time, you know, so a decade ago, uh, over a decade ago or about a decade ago, um, you know, that, that scared the shit out of me. <laughs> so I didn't want to throw $5,000 at it because, you know, to do that would be risking $5,000. And while, yeah, it might go to 30 uh, and, you know, I, I might double it or triple it. I might also lose 90% of it. And I didn't really want to, you know, risk that. 
the mistake I made was looking at it solely in terms of price and not what it was designed to do and how that interacted with the world that was being created in front of my eyes. And I think that's the mistake that a lot of people will fall into right now as well, is that they will look at the price of Bitcoin and they will see it at such a very high value, but they will miss the bigger, I think, um, revolution that sort of it brings. And I, I think they miss the, how it, how it links and interacts with the traditional system and how it's the somewhat the antithesis of that. I think if you, if you solely get trapped in looking at the price of it, that can lead you very quickly to thinking that it's not something that you want to get involved in because it's volatile and that because it's, it, you know, it fluctuates so much and because it's so expensive now and to get a whole Bitcoin, you know, is, is a lot of money. Um, that I think that can be a trap for, for young players. And so you've got to kind of understand, I think, the bigger picture uh, and, and, and almost ignore the price, which I know is very hard to do. And I, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, it's possible. You can't help, but look at it because it's thrust in your face from every angle. And even we, you know, refer to it all the time because it's a measure of its success in the world that we live in right now. But I think that's going to change. Uh, and so I just, you know, I, I encourage people listening that yes, it's expensive, but I think you should spend the time to understand its origins and understand the potential of what it can do as the, as, as a somewhat of an anarchist's money, uh, I suppose, against, against central banks and, and, and governments. Yeah. I mean, I th I'd probably say more so almost like a technologist's money. It's sort of the, uh, almost like the engineer's money. I mean, it's like a, an attempt to, uh, it's an attempt to create something that really can't be uh that is still a product of uh sort of cons can, well it's a product of network consensus so it's still sort of internet money it requires uh it requires voluntary exchange to some degree or voluntary agreement in order to exist but at the same time has these very tight uh restrictions on it I must say, I was when you're talking about how it start that how things are going to change. I mean, I think things are starting. I mean, we're we're witnessing that happening to some degree. Where I mean, you just look at the Google trends. If you just go on Google trends and then you just take a look at uh, Google searches for Bitcoin, they are completely flat. There is no, you know, this is no, there's no 2017 mania going on. This yeah. is like the every man is not searching for Bitcoin by any measure. Like there is not. This is not, it doesn't feel, whoever is driving the price up, whoever is buying in size, they're not, uh, so, you know, it's not some, some, it's not some kid, it's not some parent who's been told by their kid that you should buy it, not someone who's heard around the pub that, you know, the, this thing's going up, you should buy it, or anything like that. I mean, this is, this, this entire price rally that we've seen over this year is not being driven by people like just trying to check what the Bitcoin price is, they're not trying to just earn a, earn a quick buck on it. You know, I found that really quite alarming. I thought the uh, the lack of interest for that when I looked it up, it was only you know it was, it was within the last week I looked that I actually wanted to check what that was, yeah. And uh, you know it, it was alarming to me, like the fact that the, this 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 rally is, has been really quite terrific, and you know we're we're at levels where the last time we were at this level it then went on to twenty k, and 
you know, it, it just seems like, uh, well, last time it was at this level on the way up, it seems like uh, whoever is buying has a di is not, you know, is they're, they're fewer in number and they've got a lot more money. And, mm. um, you know, just that, yeah, the sort of the perception of things, the fact that the vac this is continue to go on after the vaccine announcement says to me that this is no longer part, this isn't just part of the, the grand tech trade where tech was going up during lockdown because it was the only game in town because these were only companies that were actually being able to grow their business. So yeah. you, know, you could make the narrative that Bitcoin's going up because it's a form of tech. But the fact that this is, you know, we've seen a, a, some grand moves just post that vaccine announcement suggest to me that this is this is something different from it I know. yeah look i I've, i know that some people have have said that it's very much linked to tech stocks and it trades like a tech stock and i can see i can see how that would be an angle to take um i've always believed that it's it's always been decoupled that that but again it's probably a, a more relative to the people that have been buying it so the people <clears throat> the people that have been buying it or investing in it have been the same people that have been investing and buying the tech stocks. And I think that we've now got to a point where people that are investing and buying it as well are the same people that do that. But then there's also a bunch of people that are not investing in tech stocks <laughs> and, and that are, are looking to, you know, other you know, value investments. So I think the thing with Bitcoin is that it, at periods of time, it will look like it trades as a stock and it will look like it trades as gold. And it will look like it trades as property. And, and that's something that I've said for a long time is that it's all of these things and then some. It's its, it's, its own thing that we don't, we always try to bring back a comparison to, to the assets and asset classes that we know, but it's a new asset class with its own properties and dynamics. And that with its such short trading history, we, we, we don't, we can't really give it its own description because we don't have enough to go on like we do with stocks and property and things like that so it doesn't trade like those it is its own entity in in how it trades and i think mm. we'll, we'll see that play out a lot more as it gets older because like i said it's only you know it's only just gone um 11 years old so and that's bitcoin and then there's the whole other you know crypto ecosystem off the off the back of that as well which is a whole other discussion but it's i again i, I think people people make a mistake of trying to correlate it to other assets when it's i think it's a mistake because it is such it's so diverse in what it is capable of and how it can be treated and used and traded uh and and that 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 differentiation between all those kinds of asset classes means that you shouldn't necessarily track it like those because it can be a bit of all of those at once or some of them at once or none of them at once um and then sometimes just do it do its own thing like like you wouldn't you wouldn't even know what the hell's going on. So yeah, it's, it's like I say, it's fascinating to watch. Mm. I think the, uh, my, my favorite description of Bitcoin, uh, which I've, which I've yet to encounter. I don't think it was this year. I think it was, I think it was the year before, maybe the year before that even where uh, somebody on Twitter just said, you know, give me, give me, you know, what it what's going on with Bitcoin. And someone said, uh, imagine if you left, imagine if leaving your car running created yes. solved sudokus that you could then trade for heroin and it, it you know that it you know it's obviously a joke and you know but, but very it's brilliant right and it yeah and it sums up yeah it, it is a very good way of, of of trying to trying to show what this thing is uh, is kind of capable of doing i mean I, i'm i when it comes to the 
the Bitcoin sort of the way it trades and manner it trades. I think there are some there are some corollaries you can draw from it. At least if if, if anything, it's maybe not telling what Bitcoin is, but it's telling what Bitcoin is being viewed as. Um, yeah. You know, when it came to like social media stocks, for example, you know, there was a great chart you could draw where if you put Bitcoin on a log scale, you know, and you kept the social media stocks not on you know just on a normal linear scale, you know, there was a very tight correlation. It, it kind of made sense if you're where, where Bitcoin is this almost social network in that you're transacting money with other people. Um, the value of that network would be viewed similar to the value you'd find from the likes of Snapchat or something. I think that I think there was a, there's, I need to I need to check what that chart looks like, but maybe it's more. I think measuring Bitcoin against other things in in the way in when it goes up and when it goes down. I mean, I think it I think it at least illustrates how the market views Bitcoin, even if that isn't what Bitcoin ultimately is in its original spirit, right? Well, it it feels like it's still in a discovery phase, like like. And I, and I feel like it's still in a price discovery phase as well because people still don't really know how to treat it and for all the reasons that you just said, but, but also because it's, it's just so, so young and, and so many people still don't know about it or have access to it or, or, or understand, you know, how, how it works or how they can get exposure to it. So I think we're still in this massive price discovery phase. Yeah, I think uh, I think when it when you look at um, well, similar to what I was saying, well, you're just saying you know with it when you look at the Google trends and somebody big who's got the money there, somebody's making some kind of bet. Where someone with a lot of money is making a bet with a small allocation, probably, um, or maybe even with a large allocation. I think when you mentioned family offices earlier uh, as to who it might be that could be the contributor to this rally, I think that's something. I think that's something that may, I think a lot of it may be from that family office level. Yeah. I mean, your family office sounds kind of a private family office is really just a private hedge fund that, you know, somebody with yeah. a lot of money yeah. who's just running it for themselves or for their, you know, or for their, in, in, I mean, in the original sense for their families. Yeah. Uh, in, the, right? in the last month I've had probably at least two or three people say that they know of family offices, uh, big family offices, uh, that that uh allocating a significant portion of money into bitcoin yeah and, and significant and that's my small network right right and well yeah i mean you've got and you know how many family offices are there but like exactly. to me, the 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 thing with family offices is that they you know they've no need to tell the public what they're doing yeah. at all like, well i can i can categorically say that some of the ones that i've heard of are are, are worth over a billion Right, but they they they're not trying to raise money from anybody. No, so there's no, no, need no. To sell their strategy they, to the public. So yeah, no one knows about these people. No, they they're not on any Forbes list or anything like that. They're the I call them the silent billionaires. They're the mm. people of the world that don't go about. You know, they don't want to get in the press. They don't want everyone to know how much they're worth. They don't need to because why would you? I mean, unless you know, if if you're a billionaire, why would? And unless you're running a massively public company, why would you want anyone to know how much you're worth? Um, yeah. And they're the kinds of, that's the kind of money that is coming to this space. Yeah. I think that, I think it's, uh, I think it's interesting when you've got, and of course you never hear from them. I mean, that's kind of the exactly. nature of the, that's the, that's the nature of, of their business. That's where you've got somebody who's just out there trying to preserve capital, but they're not trying to run anyone else's money. So it's not like no. a, 
not like any of these hedge funds who come up with flashy presentations in order to try and raise money. They're not trying, they're not an asset manager or not an asset gatherer, as it were, they're just an asset manager. So what they get up to, uh, they never tell you about, but it's kind of important because they've not got that same bias. Uh, and I think they might be one of the, uh, one of the, yeah, as, as you describe on the, on the big culprits behind the rally. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm on my third beer now. This is a, uh, this is an, this one's written in English, uh, gracefully everyday IPA. And this is by a Swedish brewery called Oppigards. And, uh, yeah, it's all still written in Swedish sadly, but, uh, this is 4.6%, <laughs> but yeah, they just, they just wrote the title in English. Everything else is in Swedish. Uh, but no, it's, uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I must say, I think I would give this one, uh, I think I would give this one a B actually the everyday IPA by Alphagards. Sam, I, are you still on your second? I, I have now pretty much finished my, uh, my second, uh, the want to go to the sun from the lost and grounded brewery, which is pale ale, a four point six percent pale ale. Uh, again, that's, that was, that was, these two have been very, very enjoyable tonight um uh, pretty inoffensive uh pretty bog standard pale ale uh to be fair uh but refreshing pretty pretty crisp um i i i, I would almost put that into the session beer category um for those that love to use that terminology <laughs> i do not but nonetheless uh you could drink a few of those pretty comfortably in a sitting not feel too horrible for it and, and, and have enjoyed the process. Um, but like I say, it didn't, you know, it didn't, didn't grab me one way or the other, but I would, I would actually, I would still drink it again. So I think I'll probably give this a B minus, which is still a very good rating. I might add. Yeah. Bs are, uh, yeah, we, we have had quite a few Bs from you in, in recent episodes. It is, a good, it is a good thing to see that we were getting some, uh, some decent beer. Uh, we're we're at least picking up the right stuff. Yeah, I should I should plot all of these on a chart and see the dispersion of of uh, across the ratings gap between you. I feel like you're probably harsher than I am on a lot of the beers that we drink. Well, I think they'll add they'll add some diversification to our overall outlook. I think that that should be a good thing. But Sam, I do re- I do realize we have uh, we have gone on for time a little a little this episode. Uh, do you have any any closing remarks that we should uh, we should end with? Yeah, no, we've covered quite some ground today. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I love going into these is we never we never discuss what we're going to talk about to start with. We just sort of let the juices flow, so to speak, <laughs> literally and figuratively. Um, but no, it's it's. I mean, it, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing who comes up with the next vaccine announcement and if they can beat ninety five percent. I feel like it's a it's a game of one-upmanship and uh, probably China will come out next and say, we have a vaccine and it's a 100% effective. And yeah, you, all have to, you all have to buy it now. Yeah, it'll be, uh, uh, the ABV will be 50% and you just need to drink it and you'll be fine. I'll be it. it, it it'll be some sort of uh, snake-derived liquor and it'll be 100% effective. It will be a cure. China yeah. will release a COVID cure and save the world. Once Satoshi again. IPA. That's my, uh, <laughs> that's my suggestion. 
All right. Well, uh, we'll probably close it for there. That has been episode 22 of the Booze, Booms and Busts podcast. Hope you have enjoyed listening to it. Uh, we shall be back again in the near future with episode 23. But in the meantime, I uh, hope you're having a good time and uh, we'll see you in the next one.